truly a delight for me to once again be with each one of you uh, through this medium. We are in very different times, uh, yet God is gracious and uh, he is with us and he is with us as we worship him and open our hearts to listen to him, but he also listens to us. This morning, I am going to share from the Old Testament. Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, like your pastor told me, you're a New Testament scholar, but I like to listen to you speak from the Old Testament. So I want to let you know that the Old Testament is very important for our life. It was the Bible of Jesus. It was the Bible of the apostles. There was no New Testament in the first century or second century put together. You and I are fortunate. But so today I'm going to lead us through one of the Psalms that we have, uh, we have decided to look at. You know, the book of Psalms is probably the most favorite book of the Bible. Uh, uh, because you, uh, one reason I, I you know, say in humor is it's easy to find it. It's somewhere in the middle of the Bible and it's plenty of chapters. Otherwise, to find a small uh, letter or a book, sometimes we struggle with. Uh, and though we call it the book of Psalms, uh, actually it is a, it's a collection of, uh, of writings or songs and hymns. There are five books actually. So when you look carefully, you will find book one, one to 41, book two, 42 to so and so like that. And uh, we uh, find uh, the book of Psalms is something that God's people through the years and centuries, including Jesus, and the early followers of Jesus, they all used the book of Psalms in various ways. Uh, this morning, I'm also delighted that a couple of my dear friends have joined in uh, today and I want to welcome them. They know who they are. And um, so thank you for being with us, friends. Uh, we know how to pray because the songs are basically songs of prayer, speaking to God uh, and um, but we know generally how to pray Thanksgiving prayers. Thanksgiving prayers are so much fun, isn't it? Uh, when things happen the way it is, Thanksgiving service, we are so happy, etc. Uh, also, sometimes when others are in trouble, it's not us generally, and they are suffering, we know we petition God for them. But do we know how to pray when we feel God has not showed up? When it seems like God has not answered our prayers. Uh, growing up, you know, uh, I also memorized some Psalms. And of course, one of the Psalms that most of us in Sunday school, etc., get our children to memorize is Psalm 23. One good reason is it's short enough. as only six verses and all that. So I knew Psalm 23. Most of us know Psalm 23. However, I for a long time never even noticed Psalm 22, just the psalm before that. It's five times longer than the psalm. Today we are going to look at Psalm 22. So you're welcome to go ahead and open and keep your Bibles open because it's going to be, we're going to look at this part of God's word that will help us as we and others as a community learn how to pray. And I have prayed that this message will challenge you and me to be more honest and bold in our prayer life. 
uh, as well as being more robust in our trust uh, that God will bring us through. Uh, just as I said earlier, the Psalms are the hymn book of Israel, the song book. Today we have, you know, want to look at a song, you go on YouTube or here and there, you find so many songs, we pull songs out. In the ancient days, a few years ago, we all had hymn books that we'd go and open in our churches. Let me tell you that our understanding of God, which is our theology, is very often formed by the songs we sing and not only the Bible passages we read. So the Psalms teach us how to sing or pray to God when we are glad, when we are sad, and when we are bad, <laughs> when we are sinned, and when we are mad. We are really angry because things have not turned out. So emotions, one thing you notice as you open the book of Psalms, are not to be swept under the carpet. We are called to pray through our situations. We are called to express our feelings, including our disappointments with God. We are free to be brutally honest with God. Now, let me say this. Believers have more questions of God. Now, if you are not a believer, you don't believe there is a God or whatever, anything happens to you, you either say it's bad luck or something like that. Uh, too bad, you know, sad, you know, lucky, unlucky. But what if you are a believer? You believe there is a God who is, as we use that popular term, in control. Okay, and the dilemma for believers is, we believe God is good. So Pastor Sonny will come and say, God is good. And we are all supposed to say all the time, especially after Don Moen taught us that. And so we will say, God is good. He works on behalf of his people based on the mighty acts of God we have seen also in Jesus Christ. However, when we turn around and look at the misery of millions around us, the heartbreaks of hundreds of people around us, the horror of the headlines and closer home when we pray things don't always turn out the way we prayed for the loved one we desperately prayed for does not survive the sudden illness or accident some of us may say we decree and declare that the healing is already done the person is already healed we'll say and then a few days later, we don't know what to say or do when we are standing before their coffin. See, the human experience, let's be real about it, is full of paradoxes and even contradictions. And on one count, as Old Testament scholars will tell you, and even you can read it for yourself, almost 50 of the 150 Psalms in our songbook they have flowered in the soil of sadness. One third of the Psalms are not necessarily songs, very happy songs. One out of three. How many of the songs in our collection of songs that we use for worship express the pain and sadness that is reality in our lives? Now, the Psalms are not going to solve all our theological conundrums, all the struggles we may have. 
But the Psalms give us a pathway to walk with God through the pain and the sadness. How? Did you know we have a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations? It's a whole book there. And if you read that, most of the book is painful. Just few verses which we know, uh, the, you know, the faithfulness of God is new every morning. That's all. We like that song and we sing it. But the rest of the song, the whole uh, book, Lamentations. So one third of the Psalms express pain, sadness, even anger. But that's part of life, right? At least one third of our life can be pain and sadness. For some people, it seems it colors the whole of life. Now, when we talk about prayer, we often say prayer means thanking God or, you know, just saying or request, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, or Lord, uh, sorry, 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 or Lord, give me, give me, give me, or, you know, uh, give me a money, give me a job, give me a partner in life, or, you know, we, we you know those verses, ask, seek, and, uh, uh, and knock, which is okay. But let me say this, friends. And we need to tell our people this. Suffering is not marginal. It's not a marginal element in our Christian life. It is an essential element of a spiritual life. Suffering. And so we are going to look at Psalm 22. I hope you're ready, dear friends. Because life brings a lot of opportunities for contradiction. You serve God faithfully. You're walking faithfully with the Lord. And in this life, you are hit with cancer of the bone marrow. Contradiction. You ask the question, why? You are serving God faithfully, and suddenly, in front of your eyes, your strapping six-foot-tall, 16-year-old son, Anand, who is a good swimmer, and right before your eyes, you see him slip into the water, into the river, and then you don't see him for two days before his body is found downriver. That happened to a friend of mine who was then a professor at SIAX 24 years ago. We were teaching a Hebrew class together. That's when this happened. And I was just yesterday, I was reading his commentary on Psalms 1 to 41 in the South Asia Bible commentary. Some of you know about that. I was reading his commentary on Psalm 22. Now, these are tragedies that happen in life to many, but it can happen to believers. And we don't see any human hand behind that. But then you also find life situations where humans, sometimes those in our family and our friends, they are fighting us or hurting us badly. How do we then pray? Psalm 22 will help us to pray through our pain and our sadness, to pour out and express our thoughts and feelings to the Lord. And even as we keep doing that, we receive the healing we desire and need. Now, Psalm 22, just look at that Psalm. What does it say in the beginning? 
It says, for the director of music to the tune of the Do of the Morning, a Psalm of David. That means it was written for public worship. So it's a worship song, okay? And it is to a known tune, the Do of the Morning. Now, none of us knows what that tune is. We wish we knew. No one knows that melody. But remember, it was sung in public worship. And even though it is a psalm speaking of an innocent sufferer, in this case, an innocent person is suffering, here, supposed to be David, the whole congregation is singing to God. The whole congregation is singing the song. You know, sometimes in our songs, uh, we may say, I cannot feel this reality, but somebody else can. So we join together. There are times when some songs I can feel, somebody else may not, but they join along with me. Now, truth be told, David was not always innocent. We know that. Uh, all of us know the stories of his life. But here, the psalmist is speaking to God how he feels. He is going through undeserved suffering. Now, I trust many of us can remember that this prayer was on the lips of our Lord Jesus on the cross. When you read the first verse, we will see that. So in the intervening thousand years or so between David's time and Jesus' time, thousands of Israelites would have prayed this prayer. And thousands after Jesus have prayed this prayer in their songbook or read this. Just think about it, friends. Just about a, in a few decades ago, during 1941 to 1945, some six million European Jews Jews who would read passages like this were exterminated during the Nazi Holocaust. Can you imagine the painful cry of people who had memorized the psalm in Hebrew and they are in those concentration camps are crying out this prayer. And we too can pray this prayer during our times of anguish and join with those fellow worshippers going down to David's time through Jesus. But interestingly, as we will see in the psalm, it's a mixture of lament. By the way, these, are, these psalms are called lament psalms. It's a mixture of lament and confidence. It's not only lament. It's not pure lament. It is a mixture of lament and confidence. So let's look in our Bibles. Uh, just to let you know, this writer who has put it down finally is not overcome with his emotions that he's saying all kinds of things going all over the place. Uh, it is interesting that the psalm is very carefully drafted. There are three main stanzas and they are all 10 verses. And even though you see 131 verse, that is because... What did you press? Uh, oh. We have verse 11 is... A verse 11 is like a transition. Uh, it's like a transition verse. Okay, so uh, we have the psalm in three stanzas, and uh, we have verses 1 to 10, maybe 11, then 12 to 21, 10 verses, and then finally 22 to 31. So we could also look at this psalm. Uh, in this beautiful symmetry in this way. So in the first stanza, first 10 verses, the psalmist is abandoned by God. That's how he feels. God has abandoned him. In the second stanza, 
he is targeted by people and it's horrible the way he talks about it and thirdly he is praising god is vindicated by people so we are going to now read together it's a beautiful opportunity for us to all participate friends so go ahead we're going to read and i'm uh, we have asked remya and chandra shekar to please lead us in reading through the psalms and i invite every one of us we open our own bibles and read along with them so let's read verses 1 to 5 and then 6 to 11 together shall we begin uh, remya and then chandra shekar verses 1 to 5 my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me so far from my cries of anguish my god i cry out by day but you do not answer by night but i find no rest yet you are enthroned as the holy one you are the one israel praises in you our ancestors put their trust they trusted and you delivered them to you they cried out and were saved in you they trusted and were not put to shame Psalm 22, starting verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, "Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him." Yet you bought me out of the womb. you made me trust in you even at my mother's breast from birth i was cast on you from my mother's womb you have been my god do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help thank you we have just now looked at the first stanza as you wish uh, as as you may say the first 10 verses and verse 11 is like a transition and what is the main point where are you god you are not helping me god and did you notice it is my god my god so even in these stanzas though there are 10 verses all these three stanzas have kind of two parts to it five five verses slightly different and in the first five verses the david is also going to ask this question because he knows god's past faithfulness to his ancestors i mean he knows all the stories of the deliverance how he uh, you see the word verse 4 and 5 they trusted him they trusted him you know uh three times uh, he says trusted him and he delivered them so now hello god i have trusted you too why are you not doing something so in the first five verses you see he's telling god why are you not helping me my god he is bewildered he does not understand because he knows god why is god not doing anything god it looks like has abandoned me but in the next six verses or five verses we find he says not only has god abandoned me others also have abandoned me 
I mean, they humiliate me. They look down at me. They make me feel as if I'm not even a human being. I feel like a useless worm. Can you believe that? They mock him. These people are making fun of him. They say, you know what? I think he's a hypocrite. He is a sinner because only sinners go through problems like this. Oh, he says he delights in the Lord. No, where is God? Why is he in condition like this? You know, when calamity hits you, sometimes even people of God around you do not understand what is happening to you. So we all, by the way, are like sometimes are like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You remember the three theologian friends of Job who came up with their very unhelpful pontifications, which if you read the last chapter, ultimately got mad with them. Now, I just use the word theologian because many times some of, some, you know, of my friends will write to me and say, so what does the theologian have to say? Now, let me tell you, a theologian is anyone who talks about God. All of us in this uh, meeting are theologians. Some of us may be called formal theologians like me. I've spent my life studying the New Testament. I've become academic in that study, etc. But let me say, everybody, even the two-year-old is a theologian. You know, when they talk about God, whatever we have taught that two-year-old. So, we talk about God and our view of God is, hey, Job, you're suffering, man. This is not usual. This is unusual suffering. You are a rascal, actually. You are, you're a hypocrite. And Job says, sorry, that's not how I am. You don't understand me. God is not fair to me. That's what he says. Though we talk about the patience of Job, Job was very clearly upset with God. But the psalmist, did you see what he says? Psalmist says, from his birth, he has been part of the covenant people of God. From his birth. In fact, he, in verse 9, speaks of God as the midwife. So when he's born, guess who is taking the baby out and putting the baby on the breast of the mother? God. So here the psalmist has a personal relationship with God. Earlier, he talked about God's past faithfulness to the people of God. Now he says, God's past faithfulness to me, myself. You have been the source of my confidence. I grew up trusting in you, God. But what has happened now? Where are you now? Now, the question is, are we supposed to tell God all these things? Do we have to tell God? Tumka in Jharkhand. Now, not many of you may know that. There's a huge population of Santals there who have become Jesus followers. And so let's say when I'm praying for Dumka, I may say something like, Lord, you know, Dumka is the second capital of Jharkhand after Ranchi. Now, <laughs> God does not need to know that. He knows that before you were born. He knows that information. I, why was I saying that? Of course, to educate you, the listeners, that you know you don't know Dumka is like the second capital of Jharkhand. Now, do we have to tell God what we are feeling? 
We don't need to inform God or educate God. However, God wants to hear us and he listens to us when we tell him how we think and what is happening with us and how we feel. Now, the majority of the psalm uh, speaks of the psalmist's life condition and how he feels, descriptions of his feelings and his life, not about what God is supposed to do. You know, sometimes we in our prayer think the majority of the prayer is we have to tell God what God must do. So we give him a list of Lord, do this, Lord, do this, and we, we tell them. But in this psalm, the majority of it is not telling God what to do. The majority of it is, Lord, this is my situation. And in a sense, the psalmist is being tested. See, one of the testings we go through is that we feel abandoned by God. Yes, as believers, there are moments when we may feel, how come God is not answering the prayer that we prayed? And Christ also experienced that. In other words, Jesus entered into the whole human experience, including feeling that God did not, was not there for him as he spoke this psalm. So let's now come to part two of the psalm. Part two, we are going to read from verses 12 onwards and uh, this is a beautiful passage, uh, verses 12 on, on to verse 21. Yes, uh, 12 on to 21, we have Deepa reading that. Let's all read together. Wherever you are, you also read loudly with her. Go ahead. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Thank you so much. So the first 10 verses, the first stanza, the psalmist feels abandoned, abandoned by God, whom he has trusted, abandoned by people. Second stanza, after that kind of transition in verse 11, he is going to use extreme metaphors because he's surrounded by people who are trying to tear him apart. And also there are people who are gloating over him and he uses 
the what we can call zoomorphic terms zoomorphic zoe life animals zoology speaking of humans like as if they are animals he is surrounded he says by the strong bulls of bashan by the way bashan was a place on the east of the jordan very fertile place you will read that in the old testament so the bulls of bashan were known to be huge bulls so imagine it's this is not like in the bull fighting arena imagine you're surrounded by strong bulls who want to gore out your intestines that's the language he uses then he says they are like lions who are roaring after his flesh to tear it you may have seen in in a video how they tear out the flesh they are like ferocious scavenger dogs then he says they are like villains who have the language there in the hebrew if you look if you have an niv you'll see a footnote uh, it's difficult to translate that it's like they have pierced his feet or cut off his hands or feet or they have bitten him like a lion and so they are they are wanting him to be cut up in pieces as a result what happens the psalmist says his heart is melting like wax and in his fear and terror i'm sure some of us have gone through this you know his mouth has become so dried up it is he cannot speak and so while some people are gloating over him are so happy that he's dying what are they do well he's about to die let's divide his clothes even whatever he has let's divide as spoils amongst us and while all this is happening friends what is god doing Look at verse 15 what the psalmist says God is doing God he says God you are laying me in the dust of the earth that means you are putting me to death you God God is actually allowing him to die So what does the psalmist do What should we do when we feel like this One thing he does not do my friends he does not curse God and die remember in the story of job his unwise wife suggests that is one option curse god and die that's one thing job doesn't do he does not curse god and die he speaks to god and lives you see rather than some people may go through such pain and sickness and they have questions and they say I don't believe in God. There is no God. Now that is one option. I know some people feel that's the only option they can have. But there is another option. Is to go through the pain. Petition God. Here, interestingly, only for three verses he has petition. Only three verses. He doesn't petition God till now. Verses nineteen to twenty-one. And here you will notice something. He started off as my God. Okay, Eli. my god but now from verse 19 he uses if you look in your bible do you notice that capital l o r d well that is a sign that you have the four key words the hebrew tetragrammaton the four letter words yod he wow he which is the name that no jewish person would pronounce then or now no jewish person says what we sometimes very happily will say i am not saying that's right or wrong but they they would 
say Adonai, or they would say Hashem, the name, or I am. And he says, Adonai, great I am, come and deliver me. And do you notice something he plays very interestingly? Earlier, he spoke about bulls, lions, and dogs. And of course, villains trying to cut him up with swords. Now he says, look at uh, verse 20. He starts with the bottom, starts with the sword, dogs, lions, and wild oxen. So very interesting framing. You see that reversal here. And he says, Lord, Adonai, great I am, come and deliver me. Help me, deliver me, rescue me. Three quick petitions. That's what he does. Now we come to the third stanza, the final stanza of the song, the next 10 verses. And Jijoy is going to help us read. Let's all read together uh, along with Jijoy. Verse 22, yes. Psalm 22, verse 22 to 31. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Thank you, Jijoy. Do you notice that we suddenly see a change in the setting and tone? And there is no explanation given. Now, whether the psalmist has written this down later or what, but there's a complete different tone. He feels different and seemingly circumstances are very different now. Pastor Sunny, it seems the song, which was in a kind of a melancholic minor key till now, suddenly has changed into a major key. You know, till now, maybe the song was on E minor. Now it suddenly turned into an A major happy song. The psalmist expresses his desire to declare God's majesty and greatness to God's people in the congregation. Now, as I told you, this psalm is very beautiful, has been craft crafted very beautifully. Three stanzas of about 10 verses each. And again, in each of these stanzas, there is kind of a five, five part verses kind of division. Now in this also, the first five verses, verses 22 to 26, is a praise section 
that he wants to do big, big, along with the believing Israelites, that means those who fear the Lord, within the congregation. But the next five verses is a praise section that goes beyond the Israelites. It goes to all people going on into generations and in some ways envelops us who are worshipping the same Savior God today. So this is what you would call uh, my teacher, Old Testament teacher, Bruce Waltke, used to use the word doxological lament. Doxology is doxa, glory, doctrine, uh, you know, giving thanks to God and lament. Doxological lament. Lament is there and also doxology is there. And then he says to three commands in verse 23. Three commands he gives to the people of God who fear Adonai. Those who fear Adonai, what should they do? First thing he says, praise Adonai. Then he says, honor I am. Then he says, revere Adonai. Why? Why should he do that? Verse 24 says, because he hears, even listens to the cry of the afflicted one. Now, let me be very honest with you. I don't know about you, but I am not very good at listening. Okay, you may find that funny or whatever. My family regularly reminds me about it. They will show me and say, you know, this so-and-so person came. You did not allow that person to talk because you have so much to say about the Bible and this and that. Poor man could not say anything. You were only talking. You didn't listen. Now, let me tell you, thank God, the Adonai, I am. Adonai will never do it. He listens. Even when I think he is not listening, he listens. By the way, there is a difference between listening and Hearing, we know that. If on the phone you can't hear somebody, you say, sorry, I can't hear you. You don't say, I can't listen. That's wrong. Listening is what you do intentionally. Hearing is what because of the sound waves. God not, just doesn't hear us. He listens. But sometimes it looks as if he's not listening. There are Psalms like Psalm 74, where verse 11, I think, where the psalmist says, God, why is this? You are standing like this, you know, with your hands folded almost. Why are you not doing something? You can hear me. Why can't you do something? You know, but let me tell you, the psalmist says, no, no, no. Even though it may seem as if he is not hearing us, can't you hear me? Or he is listening to us. Hallelujah. Thank God he listens. Look at verse 24. He has not hidden his face from him. He has not turned his face off. But we may feel that he has. But he does not. Let me say this. That God never hides his face from his people. He never does. Even when we are wrong, he never turns his face away. God's love, he looks at his people all the time. And so the psalmist wants to declare Adonai's praises in the great assembly. 
Now, what does that mean? That is one of the festivals when all of them come over to celebrate. The rich and the poor will eat in these festive meals. This is party time, eating together. And uh, of course, for us who live after the time of Jesus, and we know from writings like the book of Revelation, there is going to be coming a time where it will be like a festive banquet, the banquet of the Lamb. We're going to have a festive meal. We'll celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb, as Revelation says. And after he says, I will do that in the congregation. The next five verses, the end, guess what? He talks about God's rule over all the earth. He says, every knee will bow. That reminds you of Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, doesn't it? You know, where it says, every knee will bow at the name of, of, of the Lord. That, that title and name is now given to Jesus in Philippians 2. So, even those who go down to the dust, did you notice that? What does that mean? Even those who are going to die, who come to the, the ultimate enemy of God is death. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15, that ultimate enemy has been defeated. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? So, he is saying from that limited understanding, the psalmist has no idea about Jesus, what is going to happen, the great son of God. Everyone, he, he sees that praise of God one day covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now the psalmist does not know that the Lord Jesus will come, the great son of David, and he will inaugurate the kingdom of God, which will have no end. So we are into that inaugurated kingdom. Future generations, and here we are, almost 3,000 years after David, proclaiming the righteousness of Adonai. And what is the last word there? He says, he has done it. Now, how do we use a prayer like this song, this prayer? We need to align our prayers in this biblical way. When life is messed up, Learn from the psalmist to express our raw emotions before God. I sometimes ask songwriters and worship leaders to learn from these lament psalms. Maybe to write some of these kind of songs and lead God's people into this kind of honest worship. Where we learn to lament and protest. Lord, this is not okay. What is happening in this world is not okay. In other words, when we do this, what we are doing is we are naming what is wrong in our present age. Because then it shows us this is not okay in this present age. We look forward to the age to come where God will make all things okay, all things right. And all nations are moving towards that great, powerful reconciliation and resolution and healing of the world, where the evil and the suffering that we experience here, which totally is, uh, which includes, you know, uh, unjust suffering, which we did, don't, didn't deserve. Ultimately, we are moving then by our protest. We are saying this is not okay now. We are moving towards redemption. Where are you on this journey? 
in our journey. Yesterday, I spoke to a dear friend and his wife. He's a pastor. His wife is a pastor's daughter. And she said how she had been in grief for the last one year. You see, last October, she lost her younger sister, very young. And she desperately prayed, begged God for healing. And it seemed God did not answer. My wife, Melody, and I sat and listened to her pour out her pain that God did not answer her prayers like that. And she still says she's in grief, sad, and even angry, and asks why. The little prophetic book of Habakkuk, she said, has become very dear to her, where it's mostly the prophet asking God, why is this so? And then at the end, still saying, I will trust in you. And I told her, it's okay. That is the right way to pray. Now, as we close, I just want to say a few things about Jesus and this psalm. Now, if you are reading this carefully, you would have noticed there are many amazing details seem to connect with the life of Jesus, especially during the time of his crucifixion. While Jesus is reciting the psalm, I believe along with many other Old Testament scholars, that just like I had memorized as a child Psalm 23, I think very early on Jesus memorized Psalm 22. And maybe he began to recognize his own messianic calling of suffering. That's why in the Gospel of Mark, when he tries to explain to the disciples, listen, guys, I am going to suffer and die like this. They say, no way. Jesus understood from that Isaiah 52 verse 13 onwards, going until the end of Isaiah 53, that the servant of the Lord imagery that was there was in a way prophetic about his calling as a Messiah. But the Jewish people were not ready for that kind of Messiah. Peter was not ready for that. They wanted a Messiah who will kick out these Romans, not be kicked by the Romans. But Jesus on the cross, in that deep agony, I believe what he started doing was he started reciting this prayer from memory. You know, there are things that you remember, you have memorized songs, especially songs. That's why this is a song, by the way. Jesus probably had a tune that he had learned this psalm in. He is reciting that. He begins with the first verse. Now, all the words of Jesus on the cross are not captured to us. Though we generally like to use the word seven words on the cross, None of the Gospels give it, gives it as seven words. Because we pull from all the four Gospels, we put it together, we have seven uh, phrases or sentences, we call it seven words. But did you notice that very clearly, two of the Gospels mentioned that, Mark and Matthew. He cried out, my God. So Jesus was almost certainly reciting this psalm on the cross. And then... Do you realize how the psalm has ended? He has done it. My NIV translation says that. But actually in the Hebrew, 
there is only one Hebrew word, Asa. He has acted. He has done it. That's all, Asa. And you may remember in the Gospel of John, there is one word mentioned. Jesus on the cross, he said, it is finished. In the Greek, Jesus didn't speak it in Greek, but the Greek of the Gospel of John says, tetelestai, one word. It is finished. Now, I believe Jesus went through this psalm and the experiences he had around the cross were fulfilling this psalm, not in a perfectly predictive way, but this psalm became a pattern for him, the pattern of an innocent sufferer who cries out to God. Jesus uses David's prayer because it best suited the situation. And in a sense, Jesus praying this prayer has identified with all the sufferings of humanity and experiences. He experiences the pain of not experiencing God's deliverance at that time, feeling even God forsaken, even though God did not forsake him, okay? I like to say this, and I have written about this, uh, and it's on, uh, on the internet. Did God did the Father forsake Jesus on the cross? No, he did not. But he felt that way. Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In other words, God was also experiencing the pain in Jesus. So where was God? God was in Christ. But Jesus, as a human, experienced the pain, the suffering of that we humans go through. We are invited to pray the first half of the psalm because we don't know whether we will see the deliverance of this side of the parousia, this side of the coming. We can pray this prayer. Definitely we can pray this prayer with Jesus because Jesus is praying this prayer with us. This was David's prayer, which the son of David made his own. And we too can make it our own. And sometimes maybe you, we don't feel like this. It's all right. Somebody else may be feeling like that. On behalf of somebody else, we need to pray. Jesus, by entering into a world and carrying the painful terror and wickedness of human sin, shows us that God has entered into our painful spaces and ultimate deliverance is assured. Ultimate deliverance, just as in the resurrection of Jesus, was a reality. Friends, we cling on to Jesus. And because we cling on to Jesus, even when we feel God has not answered our prayers, we too will share his victory and vindication. I want to close with a story that I heard about that goes back 200 years. It's a story very, uh, you know, close to the history of Europe. If this battle called the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, uh, the whole history of Europe would have been different if that uh, victory went the other way. 
and we know Napoleon, French and other armies with him, and the British and others, Prussia, Russia, others with uh, the British people, and uh, led by Duke Wellington, Duke Wellington and their forces. Finally, it was Duke Wellington's forces that won, and Napoleon lost at Waterloo. Now, when this uh, victory took place, they had to pass the message across the English Channel to the people in England. There are no ways of modern ways like we have today to inform. So how did they inform this? They had a system of communication using signal lamps, lights. And through that, you communicated whatever you wanted to say, what was expected. And so people were waiting near a church cathedral bell tower for the lights and the lamps to tell them what has happened. People are waiting anxiously and the news comes. And the news came and caused sadness. The news said, Wellington defeated. And that's what the people saw. And the crowd dispersed, dejected, so sad. You see, what had happened was, a fog had come, like in England, very often the, the, the climate is like that. A fog descended, and so they did not see the full message. And when the fog was lifted, the full message came through. Wellington defeated the enemy. And that message of victory spread like wildfire all over England, that finally, and the history of England has been different because of that victory. Now, friends, sometimes when we are living in this world, it looks like the fog has descended. It looks like the fog has come and we cannot see the victory. And all we hear is something like, Wellington defeated. But that's not the full message. Hallelujah. The full message is Wellington defeated the enemy. The full message is Jesus has entered into the pain and the sufferings of humankind. And in him has taken all the pain and the suffering and the evil and has once for all dealt with it. Right now the fog is there. And so it may look as if right is defeated in this world. It may look as if the righteous have to suffer in this world. It may look as if, if you're honest, you will be killed by the mafia. If you're honest, you'll be poisoned by those who are in authority. That's how it looks like today. The fog has descended. But one day the fog will clear. Hallelujah. And we will see the victory. So as we sang today, we have to believe in that victory and walk in that victory. Wait for that victory. Even when sometimes we walk through our tears and our pain. When the fog is lifted, we will see clearly our Lord Jesus has defeated the enemy. Hallelujah. Friends, Psalm 22 and many, many other Psalms, if you read the Psalms, they talk about 
expressing our views to God. Many of us have yet to learn this kind of openness. We have been taught to say very nice words. Every time we pray, especially publicly, we are taught to say certain nice words, gracious, loving, eternal, almighty, all those kind of nice words. But we need to be open with God. God wants to hear us say to him, even when we feel he has abandoned us. He wants to hear that prayer because that is also a protest. Lord, right now this world is not the way it should be. Lord, you have to bring this world to the right way. And that is what we are waiting to see. That is what we will see as the Lord comes. Shall we pray together as we pray? Um, may the Lord give us his grace to learn to pray. Pray with Jesus because Jesus is praying with us. Shall we pray? Gracious, loving Father, I want to thank you for this beautiful gem in scripture. So, so important so crucial to our understanding of the faith and so real in the lives of your people, thousands of, peop of your people, Lord, millions of your people through the ages have prayed this prayer. And I pray, Lord, that there are times in our lives when we feel like this. Help us to be brutally honest before God, to express how we feel knowing that you hear us and that you came into our painful experiences. You have identified with us. And this temptation of even giving up our faith in God because of our experiences, you went through that, Lord. You cried out to God. Father in heaven, I pray for my brothers and sisters. And for sometimes people we know who are going through their painful experiences, that we can pray with them and for them. And one day we will, as the fog lifts, we will see the great victory of the Lord, the victory that we will experience in our lives at that time. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us. You are faithful. You were faithful in the past and you are faithful now in our present circumstances. Holy Spirit, help us to be grasped by this truth, even during this day and as we go on, so that it will shape our inner parts as we learn to pray. It will make a difference in the way we pray and grow in our maturity as followers of the Lord who prayed this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.